What becomes of the artist's models? I am wondering if many of my readers have not stood before a masterpiece of lovely sculpture or a remarkable painting of a young girl, her very abandonment of draperies accentuating rather than diminishing her modesty and purity, and asked themselves the question, where is she now, this model who was so beautiful? By the time Audrey Munson turned 25 years old, she had become a muse for some of the most famous artists in America, the busiest artist model of her day. She was such a fixture of the Greenwich Village art world that she was called the Venus of Washington Square. Her face and figure adorned public sculpture and museum masterpieces, and they do to this day. On the southwest corner of Central Park, you'll find her atop the regal pylon of the main monument. Near the southeast corner of the park sits the Pulitzer Fountain and the nude image of Pomona, goddess of abundance. That, too, is Audrey. She's scattered throughout the Metropolitan Museum of Art. She stares over the city from the Manhattan Municipal Building. She lives forever in mansion pediments and ornate tombstones. She mourns those firemen who have died in action and the lost souls of the Titanic. But just a few years after working with these great artists, Audrey Munson disappeared from the New York art world. And on her 40th birthday, she would be locked away forever. The Bowery Boys episode 370, Tragic Muse, The Life of Audrey Munson. Hi there, welcome to The Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. With Tom away this week, I'm going to dig into a little bit of early 20th century art history. Now, I'm sure you've noticed that New York City has a great statue disparity between depictions of famous men and famous women. In the statue sweepstakes, it's Washington, Lincoln, Union generals. We've got them all covered. But until just a few years ago, there were only five public statues or busts of notable women. Now, the city's aware of this problem, and in recent years, we've gotten many new statues to women in New York, such as the tributes to Sojourner Truth, Susan B. Anthony, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton in Central Park, with new ones coming up celebrating Shirley Chisholm, Nellie Bly, and Billie Holiday. But in truth, there are statues of women everywhere. There's a really tall green one in New York Harbor that you might be familiar with. Goddesses, caryatids, maidens, all in drapery or in various states of undress, adorning New York's most prominent places, courthouses, government offices, Broadway theaters, and public fountains. Representational figures, symbols of unity, angelic grace, purity, hearkening back to civilizations of the ancient world. Almost all of these figures were created between the years following the Civil War up till around the early 1920s. New York and many other cities have been graced by these godlike figures because of a national urban planning movement called the City Beautiful. In 1893, the Chicago World's Fair presented an architectural vision of the United States on par with the great capitals of Europe, as though presenting an alternate history of the U.S., which paralleled Rome, Paris, and London. In fact, most of the buildings at the fair were temporary, made of plaster, but that didn't matter. 
urban planners took ideas from the fair back to their respective cities, rethinking poorly planned grid and road systems and redesigning cities with public art. Big, big ideas that would have been seen as vulgar and melodramatic just 50 years previous. This jump-started an architectural style already in vogue, the Beaux-Arts movement. It's lavish neoclassicalism, explored in columns and arches and grand spaces meant for the public's fear, as well as the homes of the Gilded Age elite. And this meant statues and marble, so much marble using mythological representations, flawless human forms, often in the nude, expressing both the purity and opulence of the growing nation. This created a wild demand for sculptors, painters, and designers who worked in the Beaux-Arts style. And it also created a huge market for artists' models, a profession as old as art itself, and now, in an invigorated art market and an age of Victorian morality, of increased interest to the public. In 1891, the model Julia Duty Baird created a scandal as the model of a nude, gilded weather vane of the goddess Diana atop the new Madison Square Garden, commissioned by Stanford White and created by Augustus St. Gaudens. Diana made the garden one of the tallest buildings in the world. Unsurprisingly, this flagrant presentation of the female form did not fill moralists with much enthusiasm. Baird was 17 when she posed for Diana. Another girl, Evelyn Nesbitt, began posing at age 14. She later said, quote, When I saw I could earn more money posing as an artist model than I could at Wanamaker's, I gave my mother no peace until she permitted me to pose for a livelihood. Nesbitt would have her own tragic associations with Stanford White, which we discussed in our episode number 188, an association leading to the murder of Mr. White in 1906 atop Madison Square Garden beneath the gilded weather vane of Diana. Three years later, in 1909, a teenager named Audrey Munson moved into a Washington Heights apartment building with her mother, Kitty. Audrey was born in Rochester, New York, on June 8, 1891. Her parents divorced when she was young, and she and her mother lived for a time in Providence, Rhode Island. Audrey, however, eyed a career on the stage, briefly appearing in a touring chorus line when she was just 16 years old. But nothing dazzled like the lights of Broadway. With the opening of the musical comedy Floridora in the year 1900, thousands of young women and girls came to New York with dreams of joining a Broadway chorus line. The Floridora girls had become famous. Audrey Munson longed for such fame. Times Square was buzzing with elaborate musical shows. In 1907, two years before Audrey's arrival in New York, the impresario Florin Ziegfeld opened the first Ziegfeld Follies with a line of dancing beauties that would grow more risque and more popular over time. Audrey did, in fact, become a chorus girl, briefly appearing in shows called The Girl and the Wizard, La Belle Paris, and one just simply called Girlies. 
Yet a sudden side gig would soon consume all her time, attention, and eventually her passion. In 1921, Audrey Munson wrote a series of articles for the Sunday supplement of the New York American, a newspaper owned by William Randolph Hearst. The articles, under the title Queen of the Artist Studio, were syndicated across the country. Although written with a ghostwriter, most of the opinions and experiences in these articles are hers. For years, I have lived that mysterious, generally unknown life of the artist's model. That which is the immodesty of other women has been my virtue, my willingness that the world should gaze upon my figure unadorned. Her career in modeling began when she was approached by a man off the street, a photographer whose name Audrey politely hides behind a pseudonym. However, the author James Bone, in his brilliant biography of Audrey Munson called The Curse of Beauty, he reveals the identity of the photographer, Felix Benedict Herzog. Herzog asked Audrey if she would pose for a few photographs back in his studio. Well, with her mother finally convinced, Audrey was photographed there as various figures from Greek and Roman history. Through her connections with Herzog, she was then introduced to a man who would change the course of her life, the famed sculptor Isidore Conti. It was he who asked Audrey, in the presence of her mother, a very surprising request. Mr. Conti at first said he did not need a model, but had me, with my mother, remain to have tea with him. Suddenly, he rose from the table, walked about me, asked me to stand and walk, then said he thought he could use me, that he had an unfinished work on which he had been engaged for three years. But, said Mr. Conti, you will have to pose in the altogether. It took a few months of sessions with Conti, accompanied by her mother, for Audrey Munson to finally agree to such a request, to pose in the nude. The sculpture that Conti was working on was called The Three Graces, a commission for the Hotel Astor in Times Square, a piece that would eventually grace their ballroom in September of 1909. Munson posed for all three graces, the first of dozens of Greek myths she would embody in her career. We've all seen our faces in a million and one photographs, but how many of us can say they've seen their face on a sculpture? Thousands of young women were clamoring for their moment in the footlights of Broadway, but Audrey had made it to Times Square, immortalized in stone. Over the next few years, Audrey Munson became the most sought-after artist model in New York, earning the title The Queen of the Artist's Studio. To quote from author James Bone, Audrey posed for photographers, illustrators, painters, sculptors, and one tapestry weaver, generating hundreds of works, illustrations for books and magazines, stained glass windows, oil paintings, and bronze and marble statues. As all the work came to completion, she found her way onto monuments, mansions, bridges, fountains, public buildings, and even steamships. She did not merely rely on referrals. At the start of her career, Munson literally went door to door through New York's most famous artist community, Greenwich Village. 
Artists have made the village their home since the founding in 1831 of the University of the City of New York. That's today's New York University. The area was already associated with both the artist's life and the socially unconventional in 1858 when the 10th Street Studio was constructed at 51 West 10th Street, a building solely for artist studios, designed by one of America's leading architects, Richard Morris Hunt, who just happened to live across the street. Other studios soon followed around the vicinity of Washington Square Park, sparking an artistic revolution by the start of the 20th century. According to author John Straussbaugh, from roughly 1912 to 1917, Greenwich Village, its artists, writers, bohemians, and political radicals became known as villagers, and Greenwich Village became recognized around the world as the left bank of America. And in her way... Audrey Munson helped to create this, posing for hours in many village studios, becoming so synonymous with the scene that she became known as the Venus of Washington Square. She even posed for many great artists at the 10th Street Studios. Now, what set her apart from others was her absolute professionalism. While she was undeniably beautiful, her body in perfect proportions for the art stylings of the day, Munson felt a part of the artist's process and delivered each pose as though it were a performance. Artists praised her demeanor, which imbued each pose with confidence and grace. If an artist's model wants to keep the place she had won, she must be businesslike. Every model who is a real success must study the work of the persons she is with. Many think that posing is simply taking a certain prescribed position and holding it for a stated length of time, and that outside the physical strain, it is easy. <laughs> Try it and see. The job required great endurance as well. She would sometimes be covered in oil or grease, then encased in plaster of Paris, her face and eyes completely enclosed and quickly drying plaster paste a silver tube her only means of breathing. And the whole time, she would be naked. As her career grew, her every body part was catalogued and discussed by artists, down to the dimples on her lower back. In position, holding a pose while a sculptor or painter worked, I thought of myself only as a model, a mere piece of human flesh. The moment the artist dropped his brush or mallet or modeling tool, I became a human young woman again, ashamed to have my body seen. But as she was being carefully recreated in works of art, Munson too was observing the habits of the artists, the techniques of their craft. In another life, Munson could have perhaps been an acclaimed artist in her own right, and given more literary freedom, she could have also written a barn burner of a candid memoir. Many strange experiences come to the model who poses first in one studio and then another. Learning the intimate secrets of each artist's home, and knowing the temperamental side of great artists better even than members of his own family. Audrey quickly learned to avoid the temptations of bohemian life, the vice and decadence which drew people to the village. Her professionalism seemed to protect her from men she called pseudo-artists, 
Libertines, whose midnight sessions with artist models failed to produce any actual work. The men were the kind known for their elaborate, luxurious studios who play at art for no more serious reason than to lure into their clutches beautiful young women with whom they may do as they like. It is the cheapest and commonest way of bringing youth and beauty to the midnight revels that are staged under the magic guise of Bohemia. Munson managed to engage only New York's top-tier artists, and her resume is like a who's who of mainstream Beaux-Arts masters. She was a favorite of Adolf Weinman, who was commissioned to create a colossal copper sculpture for the top of the Manhattan Municipal Building near City Hall. It remains to this day the largest statue in Manhattan, 25 feet tall, called Civic Fame an embodiment of New York's might, sheathed and surrounded in various symbolic imagery. But the face and body are that of Audrey Munson. She was also a frequent visitor to McDougal Alley, that famed Studio Cove just north of Washington Square. Here she posed for Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, who would soon develop her studio into a burgeoning museum for American artists. And Audrey frequently worked with Daniel Chester French, best known for the statue of Abraham Lincoln in Washington, D.C.'s Lincoln Memorial. Now, Audrey didn't pose for that one, but she is there in several other very well-known French works, including the captivating female depictions of Brooklyn and Manhattan, which once stood at the foot of Manhattan Bridge and today make their home at the Brooklyn Museum. Munson is also featured in a couple major works by Daniel Chester French in a Metropolitan Museum of Art sculpture gallery. It's hard to know precisely how many works of art at the Met feature Audrey Munson. It's at least over two dozen, and possibly many, many more. Mr. Alexander, who then was chairman of the Hanging Committee for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, sent for me one day and asked me if I would pose for him for two or three weeks while he finished a portrait of a wealthy society woman, who he said was about my build but who would never be satisfied, he was sure, if he should paint her the way she actually was. He added, She gives me the impression of a kangaroo, whether she is sitting or standing. In the summer of 1913, the New York Sun declared her Miss Manhattan in a fawning interview, describing her as, quote, the young woman with the laughing eyes, smooth, sleek hair and features which lend themselves to everything from a blessed damsel to a laughing, dancing girl. Her face could convey calm, innocence, or grief. In particular, sculptors called for Munson in works marking moments of great tragedy. Attilio Piccirilli used Munson in two statues at the USS Maine Monument in Central Park and the Fireman's Memorial in Riverside Park, both unveiled in the year 1913. That same year, Augustus Lukeman used Audrey to create a wistful bronze of a muse, a tribute to Ida and Isidore Strauss, who died in the sinking of the Titanic the previous year. But the most tragic piece of art associated with Audrey Munson is actually a piece of great joy. That lively bronze goddess, Pomona, who stands atop the Pulitzer Fountain in front of the Plaza Hotel. 
The fountain was funded by the estate of Joseph Pulitzer, who died in 1911, and the goddess sculpture was started by artist Carl Bitter. But in 1915, while leaving the Metropolitan Opera, Bitter was struck and killed by an automobile. Bitter died just a few weeks after the start of the Panama Pacific International Exposition, the San Francisco World's Fair. Bitter had been the director of sculpture for the fair, commanding a superior list of New York artists who produced dozens of works which were shipped across the country in time for the fair's opening. Audrey Munson posed for many of those works. The expo was intended to celebrate the opening of the Panama Canal and to serve as a reintroduction to the city of San Francisco, which had suffered a terrible earthquake and fire nine years earlier. But among the chief attractions was Audrey Munson. San Francisco newspapers ran guides for finding images of Munson throughout the fairgrounds. The San Francisco Examiner declared, quote, America's great sculptors are ready to admit that she is the most perfectly formed woman who ever posed in an American studio, unquote. She became a household name, her beauty celebrated in newspapers across the country. But it was here in San Francisco that Munson came upon the first significant whiff of moral righteousness at her omnipresent nudity. The head of the National Christian League for the Promotion of Purity declared, San Francisco is wicked enough without strewing promiscuously through the exposition grounds sculpted groups which bear the same lack of wearing apparel that makes Lady Godiva quite impossible. But Audrey Munson was more than Lady Godiva. In stone at the fair, Audrey was a priestess of culture, a star maiden, the mother of tomorrow, the winged genius of creation, and the embodiment of all four seasons. She was exalted in the abstract. But for the real Audrey Munson, the woman beneath the plaster and the paint, the fair would be her pinnacle. Just a few years later, her career would be over caught up in a murder scandal that would unfairly ruin her reputation. The story of Audrey Munson continues after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. 
That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. I learned and saw some of the tragedies that come to women whose beauty is their misfortune. It was as though with nationwide fame, the mystique which made Audrey Munson into an object of fascination somehow faded overnight. But what other choice did she have but to try to further her career in other pursuits? In the spring of 1915, weeks after the opening of the San Francisco Fair, Munson was on the stage in New York for a massive fashion show staged as a sort of vaudeville event at the Palace Theater. But the show was a debacle, and she never returned to the Broadway stage again. Instead, it was the burgeoning industry of silent film that next came a calling. The New York region had once been the center of filmmaking, back in the days of the Nickelodeons. But by the year 1915, many studios had already moved out to Los Angeles. But some remained in New York, including the Thanhauser Company, a production company in New Rochelle, just north of New York City. It was a struggling film company. Its main studio and many of its film negatives had been destroyed in a fire just two years earlier. But in 1915, Edwin Thanhauser signed Audrey Munson to make a film entitled Inspiration, based extremely loosely on her own life. I'll let Variety magazine provide the plot. It is about an artist unable to get a satisfactory model. His friends find a country girl who never posed before. She needs the money. She is capable from the minute she starts and immediately wins fame for the sculptor. It is one nude pose after another. Ms. Munson is always the central and bare figure. The film is actually the second non-pornographic film ever made to feature nudity. The Moral Crusaders hated it. The audience, though, they went to see it anyway. 
Munson was billed as the American Venus, and ads reminded theatergoers that she was the lady from the Panama Pacific Exposition. However, Munson was paid only $450 for the film, which is about $11,000 in today's money. The following year, she moved to California to make two more feature films, Purity and The Girl O' Dreams. The plot of Purity is vaguely like that of the movie Xanadu, if Olivia Newton-John posed nude instead of sang. It also tantalized audiences, but failed to make a lasting mark. As for The Girl of Dreams, it was never even released. And so in 1918, Munson returned to New York with her mother to a boarding house on 65th Street. It would not be a jubilant homecoming. The United States was engaged in a world war, and there was no work for an aging artist model. Munson began to indulge strange conspiracy theories of powerful men who now sought to destroy her career. However, one man did show a great deal of interest in her during this period, her landlord, Dr. Walter Wilkins. Dr. Wilkins, 65 years old with a graying beard, refined and cultured by some accounts, ran a boarding house with his dutiful wife, Julia. His relationship with Audrey Munson is unclear, although most likely platonic, at least in her eyes. She later confessed that he was her medical advisor, although as to what medical involvement he had with Munson, we'll never know. Wilkins was certainly aware of his famous boarder's reputation, and eventually began to take more than a passing interest in her to the point that it made both Audrey and her mother very uncomfortable. At one point, Wilkins told Kitty Munson not to allow Audrey to get married to anybody, lest it spoil her perfect figure. At some point shortly after this, the Munsons left the boarding house. On February 27, 1919, Walter and Julia Wilkins were at their cottage in Long Beach, Long Island. On that evening, Dr. Wilkins took a hammer and struck his wife 17 times. He then staged the murder to look like a break-in. From the New York Times the following day, Miss Julia Wilkins, wife of Dr. Walter Wilkins, was killed by robbers last night outside her home in Long Beach, and her husband was knocked unconscious and robbed. Mrs. Wilkins received a fractured skull and died later at the Hotel Nassau. But Dr. Wilkins' story eventually unraveled, and he was later arrested at Penn Station in March of 1919. Rumors soon circulated that another woman was involved, that the murder had been the foul result of a secret affair. From the Washington Times, quote, A definite clue indicating that a pretty young woman may prove to be an important factor in the solution to the murder of Ms. Julia Wilkins has been found. A pinup of Audrey Munson had been found among Dr. Wilkins' possessions, and her stay at the boarding house was soon revealed. Munson again made national headlines as investigators scoured the country looking for this ultimate person of interest. The Munsons were eventually located in Toronto. Munson claimed that she had been headed to England to work on a new film project. Although Munson and her mother would give affidavits to the police, 
To the press, she expressed no involvement in the crime. I have only the slightest acquaintance with Dr. Wilkins. I saw him passing in or out of the house and said good morning or good evening. Nothing more. On June 27, 1919, Walter Wilkins was convicted of murder. Two days later, before his transfer to Sing Sing Prison, the doctor hung himself in his jail cell. He lived for just a few moments more after he was cut down from his noose. His final words, rather than be delivered to Sing Sing Prison, I prefer to be my own executioner. A few movie theaters revived Munson's old movies, but notoriety soon spelled doom for the future prospects of Audrey Munson. I suppose some people think that to be mixed up in a famous murder case would be good advertising for a movie star, but they are making a great mistake. The circumstances surrounding the crime were so perfectly hideous. Once considered the world's most famous artist model, now she could no longer get hired to pose again. Munson was almost 30 years old. There were dozens of girls and young women who took her place in the studios of Greenwich Village. Art commissions had naturally dried up during the war, and the American aesthetic was very different afterwards. Beaux-Arts representational sculpture was very quickly considered old-fashioned. In the 1920s, Americans did not feel the need to emulate European culture so much. The country now had jazz music, art deco, and a distinctly homegrown fashion sensibility. Severed from the Parisian influence, American women developed a more daring, more androgynous style. Ironically, given Munson's desire for a film career, it was actually film icons like Louise Brooks, Theda Berra, and Clara Bow who redefined the feminine ideal. These were the so-called it girls, and Audrey Munson, sadly, was not one of them. Being famous for being a nude model by this time was more associated with the Ziegfeld Follies and their erotic tableau vivants than it was a serious pursuit. Years of complaints by moral crusaders were making her profession seem unseemly. What's especially sad is how quickly this all occurred culturally. Audrey could not get a job anywhere of any kind. And making matters worse was the fact that both she and her mother had relocated to Syracuse, where she had no former contacts in the art world. Four stores have refused to employ me. The excuses they give are far worse than if they would just say out flatly they do not wish their customers to approach such a woman as Audrey Munson. In 1920, Munson went to outrageous lengths to get noticed. I have been so desperate that I have gone to the newspaper offices and have asked the editors to insert an account of my death. I thought that if poor Audrey Munson was out of the way, some of those who cared for her and her work in the past might remember and be sorry. And I thought that, under another name, I might have a chance to work and be happy again. Public sympathy for Munson did muster up another movie deal with a studio based in the New York area. The film Heedless Moths was released in June of 1921. Building enthusiasm for this movie, Munson produced a series of 20 newspaper columns 
titled Queen of the Artist Studio. Well, Munson and her ghostwriter, that is. And it's excerpts from these columns that you heard earlier in the show. The movie was supposedly based on these columns. The finished product featured another actress playing Audrey Munson. Munson, as herself, appeared only in the scenes which required her to be nude. In a way, the reverse of a movie body double today. The character of Audrey in Heedless Moths is a bit more of a seductress, again obsessed over a sculptor. In the end, however, she brings the sculptor back together with his jealous wife, played in this film by a young Hedda Hopper, later to go on to become the queen of Hollywood gossip. The film was ultimately a failure, although it did briefly allow Munson to pursue a few stage opportunities around the country. But even these types of opportunities soon faded from view. There would be no jubilant return for Audrey Munson, no more film roles, no more statues. After a romantic pursuit ended with a broken engagement, she found herself especially distraught. On May 27, 1922, Munson ingested mercury bichloride tablets in an attempt to kill herself. She recovered, it was reported in the press, and then they forgot all about her. The Munsons had no money, and Audrey's mother Kitty took various jobs to support her. Kitty later said, The poor girl feels as though the whole world has turned against her, and I don't blame her. Audrey's mental state deteriorated, and soon the burden became too much for her mother to bear. And so on June 8, 1931, on her 40th birthday, Audrey Munson was placed into St. Lawrence State Hospital for the Insane in Ogdenburg, New York, committed for, quote, mental blight. Her mother could simply no longer take care of her. And it was here that Audrey Munson remained, at the St. Lawrence State Hospital, with the world moving along without her. She was here through the 1930s, through the first years of operation for her old client Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney's new museum, through the 1940s and the artistic revolution which occurred in the old neighborhood of Greenwich Village and the new artistic style of abstract expressionism. She was here through the 1950s, when the old studios of the village found new life, thanks to beatniks and folk singers. She was here through the 1960s, the decade when that old Wilkins boarding house was torn down, as were many buildings on the surrounding blocks, to make way for the new Lincoln Center. She was here through the 1970s and the women's rights movement, where her forward ideas about the female body might have been celebrated. She was here through the 1980s and into the 1990s. By this time, most of the great artists she had posed for had been entirely forgotten, their work overshadowed by modern movements in art. Audrey Munson died in the institution on February 20th, 1996, at age 104. Despite having posed for so many funerary monuments, Audrey Munson's grave remained unmarked until the occasion of her 125th birthday, June 8, 2017, 
when a new stone was placed at her grave in New Haven Cemetery in New York, and a new historic roadside marker unveiled, designating her gravesite. What becomes of the artist's models? I am wondering if many of my readers have not stood before a masterpiece of lovely sculpture or a remarkable painting of a young girl, her very abandonment of draperies accentuating rather than diminishing her modesty and purity, and ask themselves the question, where is she now, this model who was so beautiful? The story is dedicated to the many historians and journalists who have kept the memory of Audrey Munson alive over the past 25 years, including Barry Popick, Andrea Geyer, Diane Rosas, Anita Bourne, the podcast 99% Invisible, and of course, James Bone, the author of The Curse of Beauty. And I want to give a very special thanks to Emily Bainey for providing the voice of Audrey Munson today. For images associated with this podcast, please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. So there will be pictures of Audrey herself, along with some of the great works of art that she posed for. Thanks to all who support our show on Patreon.com. Your contributions help put this show together, keeping us afloat. And in addition, you'll get some exclusive audio bonuses yourself. In fact, if you enjoyed our show on the Hotel Pennsylvania, which was the last episode, patrons actually get a bonus episode that is related to the Hotel Pennsylvania. In fact, it's a whole show about one very special historic moment which happened there involving the jazz great Benny Goodman. So if you'd like to hear that show, please join us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Boys. You'll be on there with a lot of really great folks, including recent patrons, Jens K, Patrick O, Merrily G., Carmine B, Cynthia K, Meredith R, Anna L, and Shelley. Thank you all for supporting the show on Patreon. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to this special show on the story of Audrey Munson. Tom will be back in two weeks. We have a great show prepared. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. <laughs>